And then next Wednesday night, and on the two Wednesday nights, we're going to be here for prayer meeting. Dave, I was going to ask you if you would be here. Are you going to be here the next two Wednesday nights? Are you going to be here the next two Wednesday nights? Okay, would you oversee prayer meeting, please? Okay, thank you. Uh, prayer meeting will still be from 7 to 7.30, and then at 7.30, uh, the next two Wednesday nights, there will be a video. Now, this is a little bit of a different video. This is a video for uh, to give you some good isagogics. One of the most important things, I think, that we deal with isagogically in the Old Testament is the date of the Exodus. And the trouble is that if you look at most things that have to do with Moses, now we all know that the kids are coming out with this new, that Disney's coming out with this new movie for the kids called Prince of Egypt. Now, I was talking with uh, Matt the other day. This is something you parents ought to do. Matt has been teaching the kids about the Exodus. Now, that's something you can do with your kids is teach them about the Exodus, take them through the story of Moses before you take them to see the Prince of Egypt. Then take them to see the Prince of Egypt and see how many things they can find in the movie that don't agree with the Scriptures. See, what that does is it teaches them what the Scriptures say and it teaches them not just to sit in a movie and go completely passive and just let whatever goes across the screen or whatever is said just go unfiltered into their mind, but it teaches them to begin to think critically about what they're watching, what they're hearing, and what they're reading. Now, if you go back, I did that several years ago with the home Bible class. We went through Exodus and Moses, and then for sort of a end-of-the-year wrap-up, we watched the Ten Commandments and had a little contest to see who could find the most biblical contradictions in uh, the Ten Commandments. That was a lot of fun. But uh, One of the problems in Exodus and in the whole Exodus issue is who's the Pharaoh? The Bible does not identify the Pharaoh by name. He's just called the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, if you go by standard Egyptian chronology that you'll find in the uh, Cambridge Ancient History or just about any other standard approach to ancient chronology, you will discover that uh, there's two... There's, they will tend to put the Exodus date around... 1100 B.C. The problem with that is that to do that, you totally ignore and reject what the Bible says about the various numbers. For example, it's clear that Solomon dedicated the temple somewhere around 9... I don't have the exact dates in front of me, but roughly around 925, 930 B.C. And there are clear indications statements in Scripture that that occurred so many years after the Exodus. Well, if you add those years together with uh, the date for Solomon's dedication of the temple, you come up with a date roughly around 1445 B.C. That's the conservative date. But most people ignore what conservatives say, because what do we know? We're conservatives. We, take, we believe the Bible's God's Word, so that immediately means that we've got an agenda so we can't have good scholarship. Well, there are a lot of problems inherent in, in every Egyptian chronology. Most of what you see 
is sort of a house of cards because, as you'll discover in these videos, it's really built upon three or four dates and only one or two of those dates have any degree of certainty. And yet, all of Egyptian chronologies built on those dates and all of ancient chronology from Greek chronology, Roman chronology, Mesopotamian, Assyrian, uh, Sumerian chronology is all built off of Egyptian chronology. So if our understanding of Egyptian chronology is off, then everything else is off. And this one Egyptologist from England by the name of David Roll wrote a book several years ago called Pharaohs and Kings. He's been working on a complete reconstruction of Egyptian chronology. And he accepts the biblical, the conservative biblical date for the Exodus as accurate, which is remarkable. Nobody in real scholarship does that. I'm being a little facetious there. And he's, it's fascinating. He builds all of this, and it's very interesting. I saw an ad, in fact, I saw an ad on television yesterday for a um, uh, some new show that's coming out in April with all these new Egyptian findings. So Egyptian history has, has a lot of uh, interest for people. And I think Roll has done a remarkable job in reconstruction, reconstructing Egyptian chronology. And I think you'll find it interesting and you'll learn a lot of history and you'll learn a lot of backgrounds to the Old Testament in the process of watching this. So I've seen it a couple of times, read through his book, and um, have it's been the subject, or that whole reconstruction has been the subject of a couple of pastors' conferences. So I think you'll find it interesting. So we'll show the video the next two Wednesday nights, and you'll learn something from that. This was a video that was done originally for the Discovery Channel. So it's high-quality material and good background for the Old Testament. Well, that's enough introduction and announcement for the next couple of weeks. Let's uh, get ready to study God's Word, bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, and prepared to take in God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word. It is a mirror to our soul that reveals to us who we really are. The perspicacity of Scripture is beyond anything that we can ever imagine, and it pierces even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and separating the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Father, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, only then do we have the objectivity and the courage to let the Word of God show us and reveal to us how we should think and the way we should think. Father, we pray that as we study Your Word tonight that You will make these things clear to us, help us to understand the things that perhaps we have questions about, that we may continue to grow and advance in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 18. James 1, 18. Last week we looked at James 1, 17. These are the last two verses in the prologue or introduction to the epistle of James. Now in this epistle or in the opening prologue, we have seen that his major concern is the issue of testing for maturity. 
The point that he makes in verses 2 through 4 is that you cannot get to maturity without testing. Testing in this life has a purpose. That's given in verse 3, that the testing of your faith, that is the testing of doctrine in your soul, produces endurance. And in verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result, and that's a bad translation. Let endurance lead to maturity, that you may be mature and whole, lacking in nothing. How do you get to spiritual maturity in verse verse 4? Through the testing of your faith and endurance, persistence in verse 3. So, in his introduction in verses 2 through 11, uh, James focuses on the correct response to test faith. And it's to rely on the doctrine that's stored in your soul, and he specifically refers to uh, problem-solving devices or stress busters, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, and a personal sense of your eternal destiny. And then he shifts gears in verse 12. In verse 12, he focuses on the fact that, that the, and warns us that the incorrect response to trials is becoming self-absorbed and to move into self-pity and blaming God. He starts off by saying the true joy, once again he picks up the theme of joy, which he started in verse 2, says the true joy and contingent blessings in time come to the believer who persists under pressure of tests. Then, starting in verse 13 down through 16, he focuses on the pathology of sin and temptation. That when lust is united with the volition, it then gives birth to sin. I want you to notice that he uses the the phrase, giving birth to sin. In contrast to what lust gives birth to in verse 15, we will see what God gives birth to in verse 18. In contrast to the sin, evil, and human good of the sin nature. We have the good that God bestows in verse 17. Verse 17 focuses on what God gives us. Every good thing that is, we saw last time, those are logistical grace blessings from God. Now there's two categories of blessings from God. There's logistical grace blessing, and then there is advanced grace blessing. Now, logistical grace blessing is for every believer, whether you're obedient, disobedient, carnal, spiritual, advanced, uh, a baby, uh, adolescent, whatever. It works like this. God is absolute righteousness. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. The righteousness of God can only have affinity and love absolute righteousness. So here you are, here's the believer down here, at the moment of salvation, God the Father imputes to every believer the absolute perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God the Father's righteousness looks on your righteousness so that the justice of God can bless it. So down through this grace pipeline flows your logistical grace blessings. It's not based on who you are or what you do based completely upon who God is and what Jesus Christ did and the possession of unmerited, the unmerited perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's one of the most important things that we can understand in the spiritual life. That nothing that God gives us is ever based on who we are or what we do. 
God blesses us on the basis of our possession of perfect righteousness. So if you are a failure as a believer, you're still going to get logistical grace blessings because you are a child of God and you possess the perfect righteousness of God. If you are a a successful believer and you're advancing towards spiritual maturity, you're still going to be blessed because of the perfect righteousness that God gives you. But as you advance spiritually and you're growing and you're succeeding, you're developing another category called capacity righteousness. That you're de- This is related to your experience. You are growing in maturity and you are beginning to apply doctrine in your life and this develops capacity in your life for blessing. And as you develop that, God gives you advanced grace blessing. Because you are now ready, because of your your maturity, you are now ready for those blessings. That's the reference in verse 17. Every good thing, logistical grace blessings, every maturing gift, the word perfect there is our friend teleo, or teleos, which is the adjective here, every maturing gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And there we are referred to the character of God, the essence of God. God is sovereign, God is righteous, God is just, God is love, and God is eternal life. These three, the righteousness, justice, and love of God, form the integrity of God. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies, motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. Then we have the three omnibrothers, omnipotence, omniscience and omnipresence. In omniscience, which we'll refer to later, God knows all the knowable. He knows all the actual and He knows all the possible. God knows all the knowable. In omnipotence, omnipotence, God is able to do whatsoever He desires to accomplish. That's a very important way to form that definition. Omnipotence does not mean God can do anything. Can God make a circle, a square? No. Because that would be, that's an internal contradiction. God does not get involved in trying to make impossibilities possible in that same, or illogical things logical. God is able to do whatsoever He desires to bring to pass. He is all powerful. And then God is omnipresent. That means that God is present at every moment to every atom in existence, atom of His creation. He is present in the same way, fully and totally, to every atom in His creation throughout the universe. Then God is immutable, and this is the subject of this verse. God cannot change. He never changes, and this relates to the faithfulness of God. And then God is V for veracity, absolute truth, unerring truth. God, in the subject we're looking at in this verse, is His immutability. Within God, He is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And we came to our conclusion last week with the doctrine of immutability. So let's begin there to wrap up that verse with the doctrine of immutability before we move on into verse 18. Point number one, definition. The character of God is unchanging, eternally stable, and always faithful. 
the character of God is unchanging, eternally stable, and always faithful. He is neither capable of nor susceptible to change. Immutability means that God always performs the same way. His character never changes. He is absolutely faithful. That means that whenever He promises something, He will always keep His promises. Point number two. Well, let's have a couple of scriptures for number one. Matthew 3, 6 and Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Point number two. God is always characterized by all of the attributes in the essence box. This is the essence box. God is always characterized by all of them. They work together in, in conjunction with one another. They are perfectly compatible with one another, and God never operates just on the basis of one or the other. We isolate them out like this for the purpose of instruction and in order to understand them in the academic environment of the classroom. But in the reality of God's person, they, all, they are blended together in one harmonious whole. There's no contradiction between any of these attributes. The same way that you are a blend of a number of different attributes, and in some situations one attribute is more apparent than uh, in another situation it's another attribute. But all these attributes work together, and they all represent God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all share in each and every one of these attributes. They are of one together. So they are all immutable, unchangeable, faithful. Point number three, because God is immutable, He always keeps His promises. God never goes back on His word. Once He says that you are His child and He will save you, He will never go back on His word. That, that leads to the doctrine of eternal security. That if God says that He saves you, you are saved. He will never go back on His word. He will keep His promise. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am persuaded that neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is always faithful. He is always immutable and He always keeps His promises. Which leads to point number four, because God is immutable, His love for us never falters, diminishes, or increases. His love for us never falters, never diminishes, and never increases. He doesn't ever change. His love for us is always absolute. It can never be any greater. It is the greatest already. That means there is nothing you can do in this life that will ever separate you from the love of God. There is nothing you can do because God is omniscient and He knows all the knowable. From eternity past, billions and billions of millennia ago, God knew all the knowable. His knowledge never changes. Because God is immutable, His knowledge never increases. It never diminishes. It never decreases. God never learns anything. So you're not going to go out and do something tomorrow that will surprise God. It may surprise your friends. It may shock you. But it won't surprise or shock God. He will not learn something new about your character that He did not already know. And He knew everything about your character from eternity past. And every single sin that you will ever commit, that you ever have committed, was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. 
when he died as a spiritual substitute for us. And because of that, we know that we're never going to surprise God, we'll never lose our salvation, and we'll never lose our position in the royal family of God. Point number five. Immutability plus omnipotence equals faithfulness. Because God never changes, plus the fact that God is able to do everything necessary to accomplish His will, that means that God is always faithful. Faithful to keep His Word. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That means every time, no matter how many times you've committed that sin, you know, we may surprise, we may hurt ourselves, shock ourselves with some sin so desperately. It may be considered a heinous sin by one and all around. We may be shamed forever because everybody knows that we did this, but it doesn't surprise God. He knew that we were going to commit that sin billions and billions of years ago. And not only that, when you go through all of that sorrow and all of the emotionalism and all of the regret, and even though you know it's not going to impress God, it's hurt you so deeply, you want to impress yourself a little bit by your sorrow and all of your emotionalism. When all that's over with, God knows that you're going to do it six months from now or a year from now or two years from now or all of the above. But God still loves us with the same maximum amount of love that never, ever diminishes or increases. That means that you can't go out and be so good that it increases God's love for you. That's what grace is all about. You can't cause God's love to increase and you can't cause God's love to decrease because God's love is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus Christ did, not only for salvation, but also for blessing in time and in eternity. So that's how omnipotence relates to immutability. And point six... Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindness and kindnesses indeed never cease. And this is a very important word. It is the Hebrew word chesed. Now Hebrew always reads from right to left. And this is C-H. These are your vowel points down here. C-H-E-S-E-D-H. It's sort of a, almost like a T-H. Chesed. Very rough, guttural there, chesed. And that is a a word that has a variety of meanings, but it always implies faithfulness. It it relates to his, his love. And it is always based on his covenant with man. God has contracted with man unconditionally, especially in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. So it is God's faithful covenant love toward man. It will never change. Lamentations 3.22 The Lord's faithful enduring love indeed never ceases. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. God is immutable. He will never change. Nothing that you do or I do, nothing that will ever happen in human history can cause God's character to change one little bit. He is always the same. So having said, having focused our attention on the character of God and on His goodness, 
on his kindness, on the blessing that he bestows upon us, James then shifts in verse 18 to take us back into eternity past to help us understand all that God is doing for us isn't just by chance. He's following a plan. He's following a blueprint. So we come to verse 18. We have to do a little exegetical work before we get into the application of the verse. In the New American Standard, it reads, In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the firstfruits among His creatures. Now, one of the first things that we ought to note, just in passing before we get into this verse, is the pronouns that are used here. There are two pronouns here, and they are first person, plural. We and us. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. The we and the us refers to who? The writer includes himself with those he's writing to the recipients of the letter. They are all referred to over and again in this passage as they are in the next verse, verse 19. This you know what? My beloved brethren. So right there, these two pronouns tell us that James is writing to fellow believers. He is not writing to unbelievers. He is writing to fellow believers and whenever someone in the Scripture is writing an epistle, and the recipients are believers, then you know that the primary subject of the epistle is not what you need to know in order to be saved, but what you need to know in order to grow in the spiritual life. So this is very important to recognize this at this point, at this juncture in this epistle, is that we're dealing with believers. This becomes even more clear by the subject of the verse. Let's begin. The first word... In the English, the first phrase is five, six English words. In the exercise of his will. And this reflects only one Greek word, bouletheis. B-O-U-L-E-T-H-E-I-S. Bouletheis. This is a, one of the strongest words in Greek for will, for volition, for making a decision. It is the aorist passive participle of bulamai. So here's the uh, dictionary form of the verb bulamai, B-O-U-L-O-M-A-I. And it's the aorist passive participle couple of grammatical things that we ought to know. You know, if you don't learn anything about theology, and you don't learn anything about doctrine, and you don't do anything with this for your spiritual life, one thing's going to happen. You will learn a few grammar terms. Bulamai. It's an aorist passive participle. Now, a participle is a funny creature. It's sort of a verbal noun, and depending on a number of grammatical factors... It can function more like a noun or an adjective, or it can function more like a verb or an adverb. If it has an article with it, a definite article, in English that would be a the, 
for a definite article. If it has the definite article with it in the Greek, then it functions like an adjective. If it doesn't have the definite article with it, then it is anarthrous. A-N-A-R-T-H-R-O-U-S. There's a new word for you. Learn that, go home, say it over five or six times before you go to bed tonight and again in the morning, then drop that on a co-worker tomorrow. Anarthrous means that it lacks an article. When you have a preposition lacking an article, that tells you immediately that it is adverbial. So it's going to modify a verb. It's an adverbial participle and there are a variety of options that you have for adverbial participles. The ones that make the most sense here are either a participle of means, which is how the uh, New American Standard translator has taken it, or possibly even an adverbial participle of cause. But before we get into understanding the significance of that, which is where that goes, aorist means that it has a past action to it, but because it's a participle, its action is always related to the action of the main verb. The action of a participle is always related to the action of the main verb. So that tells us right now we have to define or we have to find the main verb in the sentence. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, and there is our main verb. In the Greek, it's apokuo. Apa kuo. A P O K U E O. Long O. Apa kuo. See, aorist active indicative. Aorist active indicative. Now, let's figure out what this means. Now, sometimes, I don't know if any of you have thought this, but sometimes people think, why in the world does he always go into the Greek? Well, if you were here Sunday morning, first hour in Galatians, that's a good example why. There is so much confusion and so much misconception about different things in the Bible and in the spiritual life. And so many people come in here, and sometimes we have visitors, and sometimes just some of you have grown up in, in other church traditions, and you've been taught the Bible says this, or you've heard that the Bible says that, maybe you've been taught that all your life, and then I'm going to stand up here and tell you differently, I want you to know why. That I'm not just articulating some theological system or my opinion, but there are reasons for it, and it's based on understanding exactly what God has said in His Word. So we have to look at the grammar here. Well, because the main verb is an aorist tense, the action of the participle as an aorist participle precedes the action of the main verb. So that means that bulamai happened before apokuo. Bulamai is referring to the volitional decision of God in the eternal divine decrees in eternity past. And that takes place before apokuo. Apokuo means to give birth. It's the same word we found just three or four verses ago, back in verse 15, when we read, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, James is using a literary device of contrast. He's using these words back and forth in order to get our attention. But because we don't know Greek, we're not aware of what he's doing. So it takes a pastor who knows the original languages to pull these things out to drive the points home. 
Sin gives birth to death. What does God give birth to? Life. That's the point that he's making. Now, the past tense of Bulamai throws this into eternity past. It's passive. Passive not because it's passive in sense, but because when you have this ending, this M-A-I-O-M-A-I ending on a Greek word, that means it's passive in form, morphology for those of you who like big words. It's passive in morphology, but it's active in meaning. So that this is translated God decree. It's translated as an active voice. So even though it has a passive form, it's translated as an active and it's a participle. It is means or cause. If it's means, it would be by means of His eternal decree. If it's causal, it would have the sense because of His eternal decree. Now, there's a little bit of difference between the two, but not a whole lot. And some of you may be scratching your head if you can still think after a long day of work. You may be saying, well, if we're saved because of His decree, what role does volition have? Well, remember, God is always the ultimate cause and is always the cause of regeneration. And that's the subject here. Regeneration is through faith, but who is it that creates your human spirit at the point of regeneration? You don't do it by having faith. That's not what gives birth to the human spirit. You have faith, but as I keep saying over and over again, when you look at passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Dia plus the genitive is always means or agency. Through. Dia plus the accusative would be cause. Well, you don't... Pistis is not in the accusative case there. It's in the, in the genitive case, so it is always through faith, never because of faith. God does not look at you and say, boy, you are so smart. You heard the gospel and you responded in faith, so because of that, I'm going to save you. That's not what this says. See, you're not smart enough to figure out the gospel on your own. God had to do that. He had to make it clear to you through the through the common grace operation of God the Holy Spirit. And you responded in faith, but God is the cause of regeneration. And that's what we're talking about here. So it should be correctly translated, because of God's eternal decree. All of that from this one word in the Greek. Bulethes. Because of the exercise of His eternal Decree, And this takes us right back to the subject of divine decrees and the subject of regeneration. So the first two words of James 1.18 in the Greek are bulethes apekuesen. Because of his, the exercise of his eternal decree, he regenerated us. And what do we have there? Those two words... That took about seven or eight English words to translate. We have two very important doctrines. Very important doctrines. First of all, because of the uh, aorist participle, we know that the plan of God comes first. That's the eternal decrees. There's the plan of God before creation. God is a, a rational God, and He works everything according to a plan, and a, a plan that has always been present in his mind because he is omniscient. He never learns anything. He never forgets anything. He's immutable. 
He never changes. So there never was a time when this plan, this blueprint was not in the mind of God. The blueprint comes first. God doesn't just save you by chance. What God is doing in your spiritual life is not something that's just happening by chance. This is something that God set in motion billions and billions of eons ago in eternity past. He set up a plan, a plan of salvation. Now, this blueprint has three stages. Stage one, salvation is what we call justification. Phase two is what we call sanctification or the spiritual life. And phase three is glorification. Phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We have eternal life. Phase two, we're saved from the power of the sin nature. That is, if we grow as believers towards maturity, as successful believers who are applying the Word of God, then we're going to grow. And the Word of God is going to be powerful in our lives and it is going to give us power over the sin nature. But if we refuse to study God's Word, to learn God's Word, to assimilate it into our lives and to apply it, then we're going to deteriorate in carnality and we will be losers and failures in the spiritual life and we will end up uh, failures at the judgment seat of Christ and we will lose rewards. That's why we are losers, not because we lose salvation, but because we lose rewards. So this is the issue in the spiritual life. Are you going to be a successful believer or are you going to be a failure at the judgment seat of Christ? And then phase three, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The old things have passed away and we are free from a sin nature, minus a sin nature, and we are saved from the presence of sin. This is the overall plan of God. It starts with the most important decision in your life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It ends when you're absent from the body face to face with the Lord and you go to heaven. In between, the major issue here is your volition. Negative to the Word or positive to the Word? Are you going to be learning the Word of God consistently? Day in and day out, constantly renovating your thinking because you're taking in the Word of God. And the uh, question we need to ask ourselves when we look at this is, this is God's plan for our life. God's plan is for us to grow as believers. God's plan, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. He's going to build in us the character of Christ. That's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. God is in the process of trying to mold us and make us like Jesus Christ so that we reflect His character in our lives day in and day out. How does He do that? According to James, He does that through the pressure of testing. That outside adversity gives us the opportunity to to apply or to reject the Word of God in our lives in terms of the problem-solving devices. When we apply those, we avoid converting the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul, that, as we continue to do that, that's persistence. It produces spiritual maturity. As we advance towards spiritual maturity, more and more what we have to learn is to get rid of our agenda and to get onto God's plan. God's plan is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Our agenda is comfort. Our agenda is security. Our agenda is making a name for ourselves. Our agenda is making enough money to sit back and relax and have a, have a good retirement. We have all kinds of agendas. And sometimes they differ from person to person, from day to day. 
But the major reason we go through testing is that God is trying to drive us to a point of, of getting rid of our agenda to get onto His plan and His blueprint. And so when we see a phrase like this in the exercise of His eternal decree or because of His eternal decree, it has to remind us that we are, as believers, we have entered into a plan that God devised for us from eternity past. It is a plan that has our name on it. And as long as we are positive to Him and we are growing in the knowledge of, in the, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we are going to be living a life consistent with that plan and advancing to spiritual maturity. Now, there may be testing, but it's not going to be divine discipline. But if we're down here and we're in carnality and we're out of fellowship operating on our own agenda, trying to make life work on our own terms, trying to solve life's problems through psychology or through emotionalism or mysticism or all kinds of other gimmicks that are available today, we're not only going to be failures in the spiritual life, but because we're in the family of God, whether we like it or not, you're in the family of God. God loves you with a maximum amount of love, an infinite amount of love. And God is going to discipline you as a loving father. So now you've got a problem. Not only are you going to have the test that God is sending in your life in order to conform you to the image of Christ, but now you have to deal with divine discipline on top of it. Now you have suffering for discipline. And you, that, that is designed to get you back in fellowship, to get your focus back on God, off of your agenda, and back onto God's agenda. So when we come to this phrase, by means of or because of His eternal decree, we have to go into a very important doctrine. Now this is a doctrine that sometimes confuses people, but it answers a lot of questions. Sooner or later in your spiritual life, you're going to start asking questions about the relationship of your volition to God's volition. Usually this is framed in the, in, in the terms of divine sovereignty versus free will. So we're going to look at the doctrine of divine decrees. This is when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit got together in a holy huddle, got around the conference table billions of eons ago in order to lay out a blueprint for all of creation for what was going to take place in the angelic realm and in the human realm and how it was all going to work together. So we're going to break this down and look at several points in the doctrine of divine decree. First point number one, the divine decrees, and technically there's only one decree, but we usually talk about breaking it down, so we use the plural. The divine decrees are the total summation of God's plan designed for believers in eternity past. This plan is the blueprint God has provided for taking a human being to God's intended goal, the image of Jesus Christ. The divine decrees are the sum total of God's plan designed for believers in eternity past. The plan's a blueprint for taking you from being an unbeliever to spiritual maturity and reflecting the image of Christ so that you can glorify God. Point number two. The person of Jesus Christ is the center of that plan. Everything focuses, everything in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross and the coming of Jesus Christ, the unique person in all of human history. Everything after the cross looks back to the cross and also looks forward to the second coming and the establishment of the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ comes back as the greater son of David to, take, to rule and reign from Jerusalem on the throne of David. 
The person of Jesus Christ is the center of the plan, 1 John 3.23 and Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Point number three. <coughs> Entrance into the plan is based on the principle of grace. In fact, grace is synonymous with God's whole plan. There never has been a time in human history when God has not related to man on the basis of grace except for in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God was plus R, Adam and Eve were plus R, and so there was affinity and fellowship and rapport from day one until they fell. But grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor means that that this is all that God is free to do for mankind on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Grace means we do nothing except accept a free gift, God does everything. So point number three, entrance into the plan is based on the principle of grace. We enter into the plan of God, phase one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man meet at the cross. In human history, God designed His plan so that divine sovereignty and human volition would coexist throughout human history. They meet at the cross. The sovereignty of God provided the complete salvation package. Our volition looks to the cross and either responds positive or negative. Point number four, God's plan was so designed in eternity past to include all events and actions related to their causes and conditions as a part of an indivisible system, every link being a part of the integrity of the whole system. Now think about that a minute. That's a complex statement, but it includes everything. God's plan was so designed in eternity past to include all events and actions related to their causes and conditions as a part of an indivisible system, every link being a part of the integrity of the whole. So God's plan includes everything. Let's state it theologically. Point number five. The decree of God This is the technical theological definition of the divine decree. The decree of God is His eternal, holy, wise, and sovereign purpose. His eternal, holy, wise, and sovereign purpose, comprehending at once all things that ever were or will be. Why? Because He's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. Comprehending at once all things that ever were or will be, their causes conditions, successions, and relations, and determining their certain futurition. There's nothing that's not included in the decree of God. Point number six. Under His plan, God has decreed to do some things directly and some things indirectly through agencies. He has decreed to do some things directly and do some things indirectly through agencies. Agencies like Israel in the Old Testament. 
the church in the New Testament. Pastor teaches. Individual believers witnessing to somebody. Nobody can ever use an excuse, should ever use an excuse. Well, I won't witness to them because if they're going to be saved, God's going to save them. Well, that's true. If they're going to be saved, God is going to provide someone. You just will miss out on the blessing and the privilege and the opportunity to be the one to lead them to the Lord. God will not do it apart from their volition, and He will never interfere with human volition. Without so that leads us to, oh, that's still part of point six. Without interfering with human volition, in any way, God has designed a plan so perfect that it includes every cause and effect, directive, provision, preservation, and function for all believers. It includes everything, yet in a way that, that he, has, he has done it so as to never interfere with the function of human volition. Now that is beyond our comprehension. Point number seven. Within the plan of God, there are first, second, and third level functions. First, second, and third level functions, but they all constitute one great, all-comprehensive plan, which is perfect, eternal, unchangeable, and without loss of integrity. The plan of God includes first, second, and third level functions. That means He includes direction. When the things that he will affect directly, for example, when he uh, interferes with human history and he separates the Red Sea, divides the Red Sea, or when he breaks into human history and appears to Abraham in a Christophany in the Old Testament, or Theophany, or he appears uh, in various manifestations as the cloud of cloud or as a pillar of fire that went before the children of Israel the miracles that he wrought under uh, Elijah and Elisha, and then at the time of Christ and under the apostles. These are things that God has decreed to do directly. For example, when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared personally to Saul on the road to Damascus, and the resurrected Lord witnessed personally to Saul. That's where God decreed to do some things directly and some things through agencies. God has God's normal operating procedure in the church age is that if anybody's going to come to the Lord, it's going to be through another human agency. God is not going to do what He did for the Apostle Paul for anybody else. It's going to be through human responsibility in evangelism. Point number eight. The plan of God is consistent with human freedom and does not limit or coerce human freedom. God has decreed that divine sovereignty will coexist in human history with human freedom. But we must make distinctions between what God causes. For example, God caused the cross, salvation, the judgment on Christ at the cross, and what God permits, what Theologians call God's decreed will or decretive will and God's permissive will. God's decretive will and God's permissive will. You must make a distinction between what God causes or what He directly causes and what God permits. God did not cause sin. 
God is not the author of sin in the human race. God is not the author of sin among the angels. God gave them volition and they had the opportunity to choose and He permitted them to fail. God does not cause sin. So the plan of God is always consistent with human freedom. Point number nine. This demonstrates that man has has free will and that God never condones or causes sin in the human race. Man started in perfect environment. He was in in a time of of perfection, human perfection in the garden. Then he had a choice. The choice was a tree, the fruit that hung on the fruit of the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he had volition. And when Adam chose to sin and went negative to God's prohibition, the result was that sin entered the human race, and not only did the human race fall, but all of creation was affected. The entire animal kingdom, the entire plant kingdom, uh, the geological structure of the earth eventually, the atmosphere meteorology, everything was affected by that one decision that Adam made. Point ten. Distinction should be made between the divine decrees which are related to the plan of God in design and action and divine laws which regulate human conduct and function in the universe. So divine, the divine decree is one thing, and divine law is something else. The divine decree relates to the plan of God in terms of its design and action. It's a blueprint. Divine laws relate to regulations for human conduct, uh, divine establishment, establishment truth, which is for believer and unbeliever alike, and then mandates for the spiritual life either related to Israel in the Old Testament or to the church in the New Testament. Now smile, it's not all that difficult. We'll go over this again and again. I'm sure you've gone over this before in the past under Ron, so you'll get it. If it's, if it's new to you, if you're a young believer or this is new and you haven't thought about these things, just remember, just like a kid growing up when they're sitting at the table and every now and then you'll put something in front of them and they say, I can't eat that yet. Well, just set it aside and concentrate on the mushy vegetables and don't eat the tough steak right now. You can come back to it later. Principle 11. God's decrees do not arise from His foreknowledge. See, the Bible uses various different words to relate to divine knowledge. You've got omniscience. God knows all the, know- all the knowable. All the- that includes all the actual and all the possible. God knows all the knowable. Then there's foreknowledge. Now, foreknowledge does not in and of itself cause or determine anything. God's decrees do not arise from His foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God makes nothing certain. It merely perceives in eternity past the things that are certain. So, God's omniscience is here. He knows the actual. He knows the possible. He knows everything that could be, everything that might be. He knows what would have happened if you had uh, gone on and gotten a Ph.D. He knows what would have happened if you had moved south when you uh, got out of high school or college. He knows what would have happened if you had taken one job instead of the job you took. He knows every possibility and all the permutations thereof. He knows the actual and the possible. In foreknowledge, 
he perceives what actually takes will take place in human history. Foreknowledge perceives from eternity past the things that are certain or actual. So point 12. Therefore, we distinguish between foreknowledge and foreordination. This brings us to our next word, foreordination. Omniscience knows all the actual and all the possible. Foreknowledge merely perceives what will actually take place in human history. Foreordination decrees that that will actually take place in human history. In omniscience, he knows what could happen. In foreknowledge, he perceives that, yes, if I do this, this is, this is what will actually take place. Foreordination decrees it. So we, the fact that God knew that you would have problems and difficulties and trials is not part of the decree. But his provision of the problem-solving devices, the stress busters, is part of the decree. He knew you would have problems, and he provided the solution. He decreed, decreed provision that would take care of any and every problem that we would ever face in human history. Because in his omniscience, he knew all the actual and possible. In foreknowledge, he knew all the actual. In foreordination, he decreed what would be actual. But none of this would violate volition because in foreknowledge he knew what would actually take place because of the operation of your volition. So in the exercise of omniscience and, and foreknowledge and foreordination, he knows every problem, every difficulty, every heartache you will ever face or anyone will ever face in human history. And so he, in foreordination, provided solutions for every single problem and difficulty in human history. That's the subject we're talking about in James is how to handle trials and tests. Point number 13. We can conclude from this in relation to salvation that the elect are foreknown and the foreknown are elect. God knew from eternity past which way every free will would decide at any given point in human history. No matter what the circumstances, He knew that out here in Africa, you've got some, somebody out here who operates on positive volition at God consciousness. But he knows that no matter how much came, how many missionaries, how much scripture, how much radio, whatever where he knew that no matter what happened, no matter what kind of pressure was put on him, that even though he was positive at God consciousness, this individual would never be anything but negative at gospel hearing. So God never gets the gospel to him. But you take his cousin. His cousin is positive. And God knows that, that it might take an extra special amount of, uh, of attention from a missionary or from a pastor. It might take a... Uh, uh, it might take some, a lot of scripture reading. It might take a certain amount of adversity or pressure to get this particular native to finally respond. But he would, given the right set of circumstances, he is going to exercise his volition positively to the gospel. So in 1841, he sends a group of Arabs down from North Africa and on a slaving mission. And this individual gets picked up as a slave, 
sold into slavery, and he comes over to the United States, and he's sold into slavery, and he has his, his uh, Sunday school teacher on a Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock every Sunday if they got there on time and weren't locked out, a man by the name of Thomas Jonathan Jackson, otherwise known as Stonewall Jackson, who was a Confederate general and taught a Sunday school class for, for slaves every Sunday afternoon. He was a devout Presbyterian. And so this individual finally hears the gospel, goes through a lot of adversity, but God works together all the details of history in order to put that person in a situation where their positive volition will come to fruition. It's not dependent on us, folks. It's dependent upon God. But He's never going to violate the individual's free will and their volition. Point number 14. Since God cannot contradict His own essence, He plans the best for the believer. God always seeks the highest and best for every single believer. God is perfect. His plan and His provision is perfect. So His plan and His provision include that that for believers in the church age, we come to a knowledge of truth for salvation and we grow by means of the Word of God And this brings us to the second part of this opening in verse 18. By the exercise of His divine decree, He what? He brought us forth. Apakuo. He brought us forth. The fact that this is an aorist tense means that it's in the past. He's talking to these recipients of the letter who have already accepted Christ as their Savior at some unspecified time in the past. It's an active voice, meaning it is God who regenerates the individual. What happens? At a moment in time, you hear the gospel. At gospel hearing, it comes to you, and God the Holy Spirit operates in lieu of a human spirit, because you do not have a human spirit. You are spiritually dead. You are a pneumaticos believer, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, and that's translated uh, a natural man, which is a bad translation. It means a soulish man. You don't have a human spirit. You're spiritually dead. That's what spiritually dead means. So God the Holy Spirit functions as your human spirit and His job is to make the gospel clear to you because it's spiritual phenomenon. The unbeliever can't understand it. That's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. The natural man cannot understand, cannot, may dunamis, is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're what? Spiritually discerned. That's human spirit. So God, the Holy Spirit, operates as a human spirit, makes the gospel clear. At that point, you exercise volition. You respond to it positively. It goes down here into your noose. And in your noose, it becomes academic knowledge. And you understand the gospel academically. And then you get to exercise your volition again. Positive volition At gospel hearing, you understand it. You say, I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins. And at that point, you are regenerated. God the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts into you a human spirit. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does washing have to do with it? It's forgiveness. All pre-salvation sins are totally forgiven. The slate's wiped clean. 
You are cleansed. You have immediate rapport with God and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that probably doesn't last long because you're an ignorant baby and you don't know enough doctrine to come in out of the rain. So five minutes later, you're going to, or less, you're going to say something or do something or think something. You're going to be out of fellowship. And at that point, somebody needs to get with you and start getting you on the Word of God and get some doctrine into your soul so that you can grow. But this subject of this verse is not growth, it's birth. By the exercise of His, or because of the exercise of His divine decree in eternity past, He brought us forth. This is the result. Regeneration was taken care of by God's divine decree. Phase one in salvation. God took care of that according to the plan in eternity past. He brought us forth the doctrine of regeneration. How? By the word of truth. It doesn't happen apart from the Word of God. Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God's Word will never return to Him without accomplishing its goal. And its goal is what was laid out in the divine decree. So you may spend... X number of hours witnessing to a college roommate or a co-worker or a family member, and they may always be negative to the gospel. And it may take 25 years of consistent witnessing before that person finally says, you know, I think you're right. Christ, I finally see what you've been saying all these years. And they respond and they're positive. Then again, they may never respond. Remember, Noah preached the gospel for a hundred years. A hundred years. To a world that had a population, some I would get, estimate between three and five billion conservatively. There could very easily have been twice that many on the earth before the flood. People lived to 900 years of age. You had 10 or 12 generations living simultaneously. If nobody had died, or nobody that had been born since 1000 A.D. had died, the earth would have a population today of about 15 billion. That's the kind of situation you had in the Old Testament. You had 3 to 5 billion people at the time of Noah's flood, and nobody, zero, zero converts. Anybody today living in our culture would say, Noah, you were a miserable failure. Didn't you understand the gospel? You just needed some... You needed to learn how to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie had just been there. You could have really been successful as an evangelist. Maybe you, maybe you needed Charles Grandison Finney to teach you how to have an anxious booth and how to get people to walk down the aisle and sing 67 verses of Just As I Am. Noah, you were a failure. Well, you needed some sociology. Noah, if you just understood a few principles about sociology and psychology... Maybe you could have really built you a big church and, and, and you could have filled up the ark with people instead of all those animals. You see, that's a human viewpoint standard of success. God's standard of success is faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says, All that's required of me is that I be counted faithful. Not that I have a lot of converts. Not that I baptized a lot of people. In fact, Paul didn't want to baptize anybody and told the Corinthians, thank God I haven't had to baptize any of you because now you're making a big deal about who baptized you. 
See, the issue is faithfulness. The issue is getting the gospel clear. The issue is engaging in witnessing and making it clear. The issue is not having all the answers. The issue is not getting the, winning an argument. The issue is not getting the most number of people saved so that you can get to heaven and get a little gold star in your crown for every person you successfully witness to. See, successful witnessing in God's book is based on faithfulness, getting it right, doing it the right way and having the right content in there. That's what makes you a successful witness in God's book, not how many people respond. And God's Word will never go forth and return void. But it's always done by the Word of God. So you should memorize Scriptures. Learn some good verses like Romans 3.23, Romans 6, 6.23. Of course, John 3.16, John 3.18, John 3.36. Romans 8.38 and 39 is good because you're always going to have somebody come along and say, well, what if I do something and lose salvation? You have to learn some verses, memorize some verses. It's the Word of God that has power. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what has power. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. They have to hear the Gospel. Because of the exercise of His divine decrees, He brought us forth through regeneration by means of the word of truth, so that we believers might be, as it were, the first fruits among his, cre- his creatures. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the chapter that deals with the resurrection. Christ is the first fruit of resurrection, and then we are part of that by virtue of our position in Christ. Brought forth by the word of truth through regeneration, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. This is our position. See, James is going somewhere. He's just finished that introduction. And he's getting ready to go into his first main point. His first main point is going to relate back to what he's just said. And, and we have to understand this. He's talking about believers. He's talking about their high position in Christ. Now, what are you going to do with that believer? What are you going to do with the fact that you're a believer? You're in the family of God. We studied adoption on Sunday morning in the first hour. You're adopted into the royal family of God. At the moment of salvation, you were given 40 different spiritual blessings. You have a vast array of almost an infinite array of spiritual assets that are yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what are you going to do with that in relation to spiritual growth? And that's where we're going to start next time in verse 19. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word that shows so clearly to us the path that You have laid out for us, that our spiritual life is not something that just happens randomly, but that all of this is part of a plan. There's a blueprint, and You have provided from eternity past everything we need, everything that is required to face every situation, every difficulty, every prosperity, every hardship, every heartache, every blessing, so that we can handle it the way you would handle it, thinking as Christ would think, so that we can move towards spiritual maturity 